one of the challenging things um, with being a parent is trying to find out how to do a quick meal sometimes. And lunchtime is usually when we're trying to find those quick meals. Just yesterday, because I asked for some chicken nuggets, which I was glad to give because that's a quick meal. Just pull three out of the freezer, stick them in a the microwave, about a minute and a half, lunch is prepared. So this is what I did. I took three nuggets, put them on a plate, uh, microwaved them, put some ketchup on the side, and then I served them to her. And I had to do some things, so I walked away for about ten minutes, and then I heard the beautiful sound, because I was saying, Bobby, I'm done! Or, no, Bobby, can I have some more? Can I have some more? I was like, wow, this girl ate, ate her nuggets. So I go back to, to see how she's doing, and there I see in the plate, all three nuggets are still there, but no ketchup. I said, you got to eat the nuggets, baby. And I said, I, I want more ketchup, please. I said, no, you got to eat the nuggets first before you get more ketchup. As I got thinking about this, she's done this often. I think that there are, there are a lot of parallels to what she does with what many of us do with our own spiritual lives. We settle for the sweet stuff, but neglect the meat. And you know, many of us have been raised in a church, and we've heard Bible stories since, from the time we were young. And we, we like them, we know them, we're familiar with the story, but we haven't really ever explored the meat or tasted the meat of that story. Many of us will know the story of David and Goliath, how he conquered that giant. Or Jonah and the big fish, Daniel and the lion's den, Gideon. But you know, as we hear these stories as kids, I've noticed that a lot of times we don't hear them when we get older. They're kind of Sunday school stories. And they kind of become fairy tales in some of our minds, on par with Little Red Riding Hood and the Three Pigs. And these stories of the Old Testament are, are cute. Look what God did. He got swallowed by a fish and then spit him up. How cool is that? But at the end of the day, we often miss the meat of the story. And as I got thinking, why is it that we don't tend to revisit some of these Sunday school stories? And as I was thinking about it, at least two things came to my mind. One of them is, I think we think we're very, we know the story already. We're really familiar with it. I've got that down. All right, he was thrown in a the pit. There were lions everywhere. They didn't eat him. And he came out. What else is there? The little boy took a stone, threw it at the giant's head, killed him and cut off his head. Cool, right? And that's how we kind of know these stories. But have we ever really stopped to dig deeper into them? And our thought that we're familiar with some of these classic Sunday school stories leads us to miss out on the meat of the passage. I think a second reason why we don't tend to revisit some of these stories is a more dangerous reason. I think for some of us, these stories cause a problem. When's the last time we saw God part a sea? When's the last time we saw someone get swallowed by a fish and live? When's the last time we saw ten plagues come on demand on a nation? And we see these stories, and think, does God do that anymore? So, and kind of the ways we cope with it is, well, we tell them fairy tale-like, but don't think of them as that being our God. And this is a dangerous one. And what our desire in this series is to say, no, no, no. The Ark, the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, that, that's the same God we serve today. 
and that we would just not settle for the catch-up fairy tale aspects of the story, but that we would eat the meat of it. That we would eat and chow down. And that we would look at these stories and we would say with the resounding confidence, that's our God. He was there, He is here, and He will always be. And today we're going to look at one of these so-called fairy tale-like Sunday school stories. And we're not settling for catch-up. We're going to eat the meat of it. It's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 3? And as we turn there, I want us to kind of get an idea of what's going on this, in this story. We might know the outcome of the story, what took place, but did we know that King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful king in the entire world at this point? Do, do we know that he had conquered the Assyrian Empire in just decades, what took the Assyrians over 600 years to capture? Do we know that he was a king of Babylon, and the Babylonians, they, they, they're proud of having one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was the hanging gardens of King Nebuchadnezzar's royal palace. This was a mighty empire. And this is the King Nebuchadnezzar we find in Daniel chapter 3. And as we look at this text, my desire is that we would see things differently that we would see the struggle that's taking place here and see how our God shows up in this passage and that we can boldly say, that's, that's ours, that's our God. So before we get into the text, I do want to pray. I want us to pray and ask that God would help us see this passage for its beauty and for all the glorious things that are here. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you are at work. And Lord, I pray that as we open this text, we would truly see that, that there's no difference between you then and you now. Oh Lord, our faith is small sometimes. And would you increase it? Spirit of God, I pray that you would speak through me. And that you, oh God, would be pleased. And that your people would be moved. And that we would all worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story begins in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. And as you see there, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Its height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, a cubit was about 18 inches, which means that this statue, this golden image he made, was 90 feet tall by about 9 feet wide. Kind of like a totem pole, maybe. It was a huge image, and it was full. It was gold from top to bottom. And we see there that Nebuchadnezzar set it up. He's making a statement here. And he tells people that they must swear allegiance to him by bowing down to this image. Now let me remind you, this is no chocolate bunny. This is not a story of Rack, Shack, and Benny. This is a golden image, an idol that everyone was called to bow down to. And you know, as it was read, if they didn't do it, they're told in verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, 
having Kerwin read the scripture reading, I wasn't trying to be cruel. But you see the repetition. Who were these satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces? They were all the leading people. These were the top dogs in Babylon. And the repetition is there so that we can see that all the leadership had to swear allegiance to King Nebuchadnezzar and his image. And when they heard the sound of a horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, they were supposed to bow down. Then this was going to be a loud scene. There was going to be no mistake when the time was for them to bow down. The music would play loudly. And King Nebuchadnezzar brings forth this decree. Now this chapter is filled with repetition. Seven times we're told that this is a golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. A golden image. And what we learn as we read this story, not just chapter 3, but in the context of Daniel, we see that in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. He had a dream. And he was really disturbed by this dream. And he said he brought in all his counselors, all his wise men, and all his sorcerers to come and interpret the dream. But there's one catch. He wasn't going to tell them what the dream was. They had to first tell him what he had dreamed and then interpret it. And all these wise men are saying, King, this is unreasonable. There's no way we can tell you what you dreamed and then give you the interpretation. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, like a mighty, arrogant, powerful king, said, Well, let us kill then all the wise men because they're of no good to me. The problem was, this included men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four men got to praying. And God, in His mercy, revealed to Daniel what the vision was and its interpretation. So in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel comes up to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, O king, this is your vision. You saw a great statue, a great figure. Its head was made of gold. Its chest was made of silver and its arms. Its waist and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were iron and clay. But you are distressed because you saw a great stone come out of heaven and destroy the image. Now Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, okay, now we're talking here. Because that was his vision. And Daniel boldly says, my God has given me the interpretation of this vision. Each of these metals represent a kingdom. And God has shown you what he will be doing. You, O king, are the golden head. Because you are the great and powerful king. But there will come a nation after Babylon, the silver ones. And there will be another, a bronze, and then an iron one. And we see from history that what the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was that there would be a Persian empire that would then conquer Babylon. And then the Greeks would conquer Persia. And then the Romans, who are the iron legs. And King Nebuchadnezzar is grateful to Daniel for this interpretation. But I find it interesting because Nebuchadnezzar recognizes what's being said. He's only the golden head. There will be a greater nation to supersede his own. And as any arrogant king thought, that's not going to happen of me. So interestingly, in chapter 3, verse 1, the king sets up his own statue, like the one he saw in the vision. But it's not only a gold head, but it's gold from top to bottom. So as to say, Daniel, your God says that I, my kingdom will not continue on. But I'm going to erect a statue to show that my kingdom indeed will continue on. 
It will be gold from top to bottom because there will be no end to my kingdom. Daniel is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is making a statement here to the God of Daniel. But interestingly, he also says that this is the golden image that the king had set up. The phrase set up shows up nine times in this chapter. It is a Hebrew word kum, and there's nothing special about that word except for this. It shows up in chapter 2 in Daniel's vision. And it's in chapter 2, verse 44, if you would look at that with me. Because there was still a stone that would fall from heaven. What was that stone? What is it what Daniel says? And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up, kum, he will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You see, God will set up his own kingdom, and it will destroy all other kingdoms. And yet here we see King Nebuchadnezzar setting up his own statue that is full of gold. King Nebuchadnezzar knows what he's doing. And he's not willing to accept the interpretation of that vision. Not that he thought Daniel was wrong, but rather his problems with the vision itself and the God who gave him the vision. Nebuchadnezzar was having a power struggle here. He set up a golden image. And he decreed that everyone would bow down to that image rather than to the God of heaven. This is a statement he is making. And then he used fear as an intoxicating force to get the people to worship. Because if you don't worship, you will immediately be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Now this is where things begin to get a little sticky. Because there are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, worshipers of the true God. And these men show up in chapter 1, and we find out they're young men. They're Jewish men. Their Jewish names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were godly men. They were men of great learning. They were wise and discerning, which means they knew what would happen if they didn't bow down to the image. Nine times, or seven times in this passage, eight times, sorry, we're told this is a burning, fiery furnace. Not just as a furnace, not that it's a fiery furnace, but a burning, fiery furnace. This was an instrument of torture, my friends. This is not a cute story. These men were confronted with a situation that was a life and death decision. And as was read, we see that some people stood up against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 12. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. King Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was angry at these men. But it's fascinating because he said, Immediately you should be thrown to a fiery furnace. And what do we see in verse 14? Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. He's given them a second chance. And he's saying, you know what, things will be good. It's going to be well and good, no harm done. But then it continues on. 
But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? Why does he give them a second chance? I mean, really, why would this great and mighty king give these three seeming nobodies? They were leaders in the land, yes, but they're dispensable. Why would he give them a second chance? I think the answer is in the question he asks. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See, the king set up a golden image. He set it up. He told everyone to worship it. And now he's telling the followers of the God of heaven, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Nebuchadnezzar is testing the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he is saying, you guys are in my hands. That God has no control over your fate. Who will deliver you from me? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with a crisis here. What will they do? What would you do? Will they respond in verse 16? They say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be... If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now these men are staring death in the eye, and they say we will not bow down. If you notice, what, what, what is it that fortifies their faith? How are they able to stand firm here? Well, I, I'll say they had good theology. They said, my God is able to deliver us. And whether or not he does, we're going to worship him. They didn't give God an ultimatum. God, if you come through in my situation right now, then I'll worship you forever. They didn't say... Well, God already told us that we're going to make it through, so of course we're going to have faith. They're confronted with death, and they said, whether or not our God chooses to come through in this circumstance, we're going to worship Him because our faith trumps our fear. Our, the glory of God trumps our lives. And they looked at Him and made this bold proclamation they said God is able and I could think in their minds they're probably thinking we, we know from the scriptures he parted the Red Sea didn't he we know that he, he used David to slay, to, to, to slay Goliath we saw we read about the walls of Jericho coming down God is able but we also know of times where the righteous have suffered they knew the story of Job how he suffered they read the story of Uriah the Hittite who suffered and died. They read the story of Jeremiah, the prophet who was ridiculed. But they knew this to be true, that whether or not God chose to deliver them from physical harm or come through in their circumstance, He was still God. And He alone was worthy of worship. So they make this proclamation. And the king isn't excited about that. This burning, fiery furnace... It's heated seven times. I don't know if there's a Hebrew word for it or Aramaic word, but maybe it would have been a super-duper burning fiery furnace. Seven times over. 
This is his decree. So they take him, and it says here in verse 30, And he ordered some of the mighty men of, of the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Verse 21, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. He was wasting no time at this point. He blew a fuse. Guards take them into the furnace. Verse 22, Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. This is the king's hand at work. In the story, the king's hand is equated with the furnace itself. So the furnace was a reflection, excuse me, of his power. And if God's people were thrown into the fire, that means that the king's hand had prevailed. And here King Nebuchadnezzar is watching with joy. But then verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, why do you ask? Verse 25, I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were walking into a seven times heated, burning, fiery furnace. This was the king's hand, and they were walking through it. Well, as you know the story, the king says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on out. And they walk out of the burning, fiery furnace. And here we have an irony in the, in the story. The king said, these men are in my hands, and they throw, he throws them into a fire. Yet the king's own servants, the guards, died. And yet it is the servants of the God of heaven that survive. And even more so, what we find in verse 27, it says the fire had not any power over the bodies of the men. Well, that's an interesting way to speak of fire. The fire had no power over them. Because the issue here is not the fire itself, but the power was King Nebuchadnezzar's. The fire represented his hand. And that statement declares Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not in the king's hand. They were always in the hand of their God. So then the question is asked, who is in whose hand here? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in God's hand. And little do we know, King Nebuchadnezzar is in God's hand as well. God brings them out of the fire. The hair, it says in verse 27, of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had even come upon them. King Nebuchadnezzar lost the challenge. He set up his golden statue. He himself set it up. He decreed that all would bow down. He held people bound by his fear of the burning fiery furnace, which represented his hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remaining firm in their faith, stood death in the eye and said, We will worship the God of heaven only. And they found out they were truly in his hands. King 
Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, God was exalted, and, and the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is recognized. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, well, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Wow. What a profession this king makes here of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He admires them because they trusted their God. Because they chose to set aside the king's decree and to yield up their bodies to the flame for the sake of the true worship of their true God. And the king recognized it. And as we see in this story, that we have an almighty God we serve. And oh, that we would be people with an unwavering conviction to worship Him and Him alone, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. That we would be able to stand firm in our faith, knowing that our lives are in the hands of God. And there are four things I want us to see to come away with that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego modeled for us. First, they resolved to worship God and Him alone. They refused to be idolaters. They refused to bow down to the golden image. Now in our day, we don't have golden images 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide on our streets and we're being told to bow down. But John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. And Mark Driscoll defines an idol as those things that are good things turn into God things, which makes them bad things. And our culture is filled with idols. We're filled with things that take our attention away from God. Things that we find to be our source of joy, our source of fulfillment, our source of identity other than God. That is idolatry. And let us be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say we will not bow down to anything else. Not even the God of tolerance that reigns in our society. If we're going to be worshipers of the living God as these three men were, we got to be those who remain firm in our faith even if people call us intolerant or say that we're being exclusive or we're immature and foolish. But the worship of our God is at stake. One thing that's so interesting in this story, though, is Nebuchadnezzar never tells them to stop worshiping Yahweh, their God. He never says, you need to stop worshiping your God. He just tells them to bow down to His. And in that subtle way, the gods of our culture do the same thing. You're not called to give up your Christianity. But how often are we told to find our enjoyment in other things? And the syncretistic way, many Christians walk with two masters, bowing their knee down to one and to the other. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have nothing of it. And oh, that we would be those who stand firm in our faith and say, God, you alone are our God. You alone are worthy of worship. Not only do they resolve to worship God and Him alone, but they remain steadfast in their faith. Their faith in God was not contingent upon their physical well-being. 
It wasn't. They didn't know the outcome of the story. They thought they were going to burn, possibly. They didn't know that God was going to deliver them. But what they knew is that their God was the true God. And they remained steadfast in their faith. Sometimes fear grips us, and it causes our faith to waver, doesn't it? Sometimes we we fear really living out a Christian life in a radical way because we know that people will look down upon us. Your classmates at school, they'll insult you. Your co-workers might make fun of you. Your family may disown you. You may have to give up the things that you do if you're going to be steadfast in your faith and honor God with your life. But will you let fear of change, fear of rejection, prevent you from giving God the glory that He deserves and He alone deserves? I was struck in Liberia with the conversation we had with one pastor. And he told Kerwin, he said, many Liberians turn to material things because they've been traumatized. And I got thinking about that. They've lost so much, and now they kind of want to regain more. So they they go to material things. And this prosperity gospel, which is no gospel, it's bad news, because it's not saving, it draws people in because they want material things. Because they've been wounded, and they they want those comforts back. And I think of us in our own context, it's not much different. We turn to material things because we don't want to be traumatized. We, we pad up our lives. We cushion them. We want to live securely, comfortable, and safe. And yet the end result is the same. The pursuit of material things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no, no desire to, to keep their own bodies safe. Their very own lives They're saying, God, these are yours. And so often we even hold to our comforts, let alone our lives, and say, we hold it at at reach with God. But these men were firm in their faith, unwavering, because they recognized that God was God, whether or not He brought them through a circumstance. So let us not be those who give God ultimatums. God, if you do this, if you come through in my circumstance, I'll be faithful to you. Oh, how I hear that time to time from believers. And they don't recognize they're doing it, but they're they're saying, God, only if you come through here. And if he doesn't, they say, all right, God, I'm done. I'm done with you for now. But that's not what it means to remain faithful in the face of trial. These men stared death in the eye and said, God, we will remain steadfast whether or not you deliver us. A third interesting thing is a call to cling to God. If you notice King Nebuchadnezzar, he says in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says it again later in verse 29, that anyone who speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he can say, oh, their God did a great thing. No God can rescue in this way, he says in verse 29. But he never calls him my God. He never calls him my God. He's always the God of them. And as much as King Nebuchadnezzar saw Almighty God at work and do even miraculous things, he never, at this place, put his trust in God. And here's a a call for all of us to cling to God, 
to not simply see him at work, have these God sightings, but are we really surrendering our lives to God and clinging to him? Or is he the God of others? Or is he my God? So we see the call to resolve to worship him, to remain steadfast in our faith, to cling to God, and lastly, to confess him as almighty God. He delivered them, and He delivers us. And there are times where He delivers us out of physical harm. But let us not forget the greatest deliverance that God has ever given to us. Greater than a burning, fiery furnace. He delivered us from the grip of sin. Sin has a hold, a chokehold on every person who walks this earth. And it separates us from God. And it has more damage than any fiery furnace that only can take our body, but sin can take our soul to hell apart from God. And God has offered us deliverance in Christ Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to give us life. And will we then cling to Him as our deliverer? See, this is a call for us all to stand firm in our faith because our hand is in Almighty, our, our lives are in the hand of Almighty God if we are His children. And whether or not our bodies are safe, our soul is secure in Christ Jesus. And let us walk by faith then, knowing that this is our God. This one right here, Daniel 3, that's our God, Good News Bible Church. That's our God. He was there. He is. He is. He is. And He will always be. This isn't a fairy tale. It's not a cute story. This is a story of faith. When these men looked death in the eye and said, God, you are God, and I will worship you alone. Would that be our unwavering conviction? Good news. And that we could see God at work in our lives day to day. We say, God, this is you. You've always been doing this. And we're going to bow our knee to no other God that culture brings before us. Let's pray together.